welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour on Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm here uh, along with Ryan Henderson. Ryan, how are you doing today? I am in sunny Arizona, which is quite lucky because this is the day while the rest of the country is under, seems like negative temperatures. Um, so yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, I am not in sunny Arizona like you. Uh, unfortunately, I am in the snow. It's actually like. Probably the coldest day of the year here in Washington. So you got out of here at a good time. Um, but I don't think anyone wants to hear us talk about the weather forever. So uh, we've got we've got a lot on the slate today. We had terrible timing on our last power hour because we talked about SBF, FTX, the whole situation. And then during the power hour, he was arrested and we didn't see it. So we didn't get to talk about that. We'll talk about that here in a second. We'll talk about why. Uh, that's one of my topics, but got to talk about our sponsor first. That's right. Seven Investing. Um, we're about to hit the end of the year. I think this is our second to last, or maybe last. I think it's our last one um, before New Year's. I think our next one for the New Year's comes out on January 1st. So, you know, Seven Investing, use promo code MONEY. You get two things off right now if you use promo code MONEY uh, through the end of 2022, and that is a seven-day free trial and then $100 off your annual subscription if you decide to stay with 7investing. And right now is the absolute perfect time to do a seven-day free trial at 7investing because they just did a comprehensive year interview for all the active picks, research stocks, and everything that they really cover within the 7investing universe. And I think that is just uh, it's 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 just a perfect time. So even if you don't end up trying, like you know, sticking around, definitely go try it out. And if you do, make sure to tell them we sent you. Uh, Ryan, anything else? I uh, know we're gonna hit them in the middle of the show as well. No, I don't think so. I mean, it is like if you've ever wondered like what's in their service, you can literally log in, use that code money. It's free for the week, and you can see all of everything that's ever been recommended in their service and what they think about it today in one article. So it's, it's like really easy to just kind of like, it's never been easier to, I guess, check out what they, what they provide, but that is code money as a reminder. Do we want to talk about SBF? That's right. Let's tease what we're going to be talking about. I know you just mentioned SBF, but what else are we going to be talking about today uh, for the listeners? Uh, Bob Iger's ego. Um, and sort of the the issues or the the executive strife over at Disney. There was a sort of a Wall Street Journal expose, which I think will be worth talking about. There's some really interesting quotes in there. And then you've got what Sunday Ticket, NFL Sunday Ticket moving to YouTube. And then I couldn't find. I found a lot of smaller things that I think will be interesting. We're also going to talk. I made sure to include it. The collapse of Tesla's stock price this week. I think it'd be fun to discuss. Although I don't know whether. Little spoiler, I don't know whether we're going to have any takes other than people wanted to sell shares. 
Yeah, and probably Musk himself. That is correct. Although he just said in a Twitter space that he is done selling through 2025. What would you put the odds on that? If you had to be a betting man, what, what would you give? Minus 1,000 or no, plus 1,000 that he won't do that? Would you would you take that? 10 to 1 odds? You get 10x your money if he doesn't do it by 2025? Yeah, I'd probably take that. I mean, he, I think that percentage he said is it twice low. this year. He said twice this year he's done selling. And then he did what, it again. The next week? Yeah, and then yeah. he did it two months later. Uh, all right, let me tweet out the link and then you can get going. Go ahead. All right, yeah, let's let's kick things off here. So, um, Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO and founder of FTX, uh, was arrested last week. I'm not sure on all the details, but I believe he was arrested by. Um, uh, it, he's in the Bahamas, right? He was, yes. Yeah, so he was arrested by the police in the Bahamas, and then I think he was extradited to the U.S. I believe I was reading something that like the prisons in the Bahamas are not. I mean, I'm sure no prison is great, but they are particularly rough in the Bahamas, and and uh, I people were speculating that he would probably want to be extradited. Um, anyway, he was brought to the U.S. Um, I believe, and he uh, or he just got bail posted. Like literally, as we were speaking, that's not the point. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, apparently, uh, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang uh, ratted on him. So they were two of the other. They were um, two two of the other people running FTX. Caroline Ellison was technically one of the co CEOs of Alameda, um, which was the hedge fund associated with FTX. Um, and basically, they both came to the SEC and gave an insider's account of everything that happened. And this is all public now. So you can go and you can read the insider's account. It's 38 pages. I think it's well worth it. I forget what I Googled to. Yeah, I kind of find an easy link, but maybe we'll contact, there, we, contact we Ryan. somewhere. Um, yeah, if you really want, just look up insider's account or look up SEC versus Caroline Ellison insider's account. And I'm sure there's a PDF of it somewhere. Um, anyway, uh, this basically was next. This exposed everything that kind of happened um, for the most part. Uh, not specifics on where the money was spent, but generally they know where the money was spent. So as it turns out, um, Gary Wang, uh, SBF had him write the code that would allow Alameda to divert FTX customer funds directly to themselves. So um, he was, he was asked by SBF to do it. Um, and then Ellison was in charge of basically using those misappropriated funds for Alameda's trading activity. However, trading activity is kind of a loose term here because apparently a lot of those customer funds. So the, the software is written for those customer funds to just be redirected straight to Alameda's account. I believe they were literally depositing the FTX accounts were basically direct deposits to Alameda's bank account. Wow. Um, when did that start? This year? No. This Earlier. was apparently a multi, the quote is multi-year, brazen multi-year scheme. Um, this was started earlier. It kind of hit its peak this year because of borrowers or, or lenders asking for money back. Um, but the uh, basically 
there was a whole lot of stuff they were doing with it. So SBF apparently used it to make undisclosed venture investments. He used that money to buy lavish real estate and make large political donations. Um, and then Ellison said that SBF directly told her to take customer funds in exchange for the FTT token and purchase more of it. So purchase more of FTT on other exchanges. So the price of FTT would rise and that would artificially raise their collateral that they could that they could quote to lenders and so they were able to borrow even more money and so they were so on top of this they were also borrowing money from external lenders even though technically they were borrowing you could call it borrowing stealing money from customers they were also using the customer funds to show that they had that money which wasn't theirs to raise money from borrowers or sorry lenders um, but then there's kind of this good quote here, which says, when, when prices of crypto assets plummeted in May 2022, Alameda's lenders demanded repayment on billions of dollars of loans. Despite the fact that Alameda had, by this point, already taken billions of dollars of FTX customer assets, it was unable to satisfy its loan obligations. SBF, with defendants' knowledge, defendants in this case is Ellison and Wang, uh, knowledge directed FTX to divert divert more in customer assets, billions more in customer assets to Alameda to ensure that Alameda maintained its lending relationships and that money could continue to flow in from lenders and other investors. Ellison then used FTX's customer assets to pay Alameda's debts. So that is, I mean, not all of them apparently, <laughs> but yeah, well, not the not. The, I mean, if you think about the customers as lenders, which they aren't. Uh, they were, I mean, basically just, you know, they were never able to pay them back, which this is, and we're going to get to this, but this is why it really irks me now that SBF went on this whole press rampage where he's like, I just want to make customers whole. Like he took it. He personally took it and he's making it sound like there's just like an unfortunate circumstance like he was doing this very intentionally. So uh, yeah. that's that's the part that really kind of pisses me off. Um, it says the height of illegal activity peaked in 2022. However, it started way earlier. This, I believe, started in, essentially in 2019. Um, and then the other part was the there was this whole idea that like SBF wasn't involved with Alameda, that that was Caroline Ellison and Sam Trabuco were the co-CEOs that SBF named, but SBF had 90% ownership of it. And he apparently was the ultimate decision maker on everything. Well, um, he de- he 100% did that to make it seem right. He definitely did that to make it seem like he wasn't doing the scheme and he was probably trying to frame it on them. And it turns out they, uh, they were the rats. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It just, that was sort of when it kind of started. And then obviously most people kind of know what happened when Binance sold their FTT co- tokens, it kind of imploded prices. And then there's sort of a run on the exchange or run on the bank in this case, if you want to call it a bank. Um, and they were unable, all those redemptions they weren't able to pay for because the cash flow really didn't exist anymore. So um I don't know. The bummer here for me is that this is kind of ex- minus the the buying extra FTT tokens with customer assets to drive up the price of FTT. The rest of it is exactly what I thought when when I heard that 
there was this was collapsing, this is kind of exactly what I thought was happening. Like yeah. it's basically what everyone was speculating. My they question are, is, uh, or go ahead. I guess my big question is, how many other exchanges or token issuers are doing this exact same thing? Those, I guarantee, most of the tokens that are issued, that they are not backing those assets one to one. I would uh, not be surprised if you are correct there. Guarantee might be a strong word, but okay, yeah, yeah. But highly, it seems likely. It seems plausible. It seems like they should be investigated if possible, especially if they are, which all of them are offshore uh you have to ask why they're offshore for a reason i wonder if sbf because he seems to be intent on not going to prison and i'm stealing this idea from some journalist some someone else out there in the world what if he flips on the bigger whales finance and tether who have even more they're a bigger part of the crypto industry now that would be interesting because if tether and binance are doing the exact same thing as ftx which not guaranteed they are, but there's suspicions that they are. I, I just wonder what the fallout of that would be. It would be a nice end to the... We're going to have to make this into... Not, it's not going to... This is going to be way too long to be a movie now. Well, here's the thing to make this into. It's going to have to be a trilogy of whenever they make this movie. Michael Lewis's book is going to be 800 pages. The thing that's, I guess, kind of frustrating is that... He was using, he was building these play tokens so that he could get cash and do things in the real world with real cash, make political with, with, donations, invest cons- in yeah. invest in younger stage companies or venture those venture investments, buy lavish real estate. There so were, it there makes were real, me, yeah, yeah. Like he was just coming up with these bullshit tokens and. It gives maybe it's like a sense of confirmation for me, but it gives no validity to the industry. Like, it just shows that they, like, on the other side of these shit coins are exactly who you th- are people who you think they are. Like, they are, they are we, doing something with the real money. They like, are this who is we in thought, the new yeah. economy. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I keep trying to interrupt you for some reason, but they are who we thought they were. Um, if you, and look, we're just in our 20s, so we're not seasoned at all. But if you're someone who is extremely confident that like crypto is the future, you're betting on Coinbase. We, you know, we we covered Coinbase on one of our not so deep dives before, and I think that was probably right around a year ago. And that was because there was a you know a hedge fund that wrote a really long uh, research report on them. You, know, you see it constantly, people saying, "Well, you know, this stuff is a fraud," but crypto is underlying is the future and blah, 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 blah. And I think, look, there are some things that both of us in the investing world really, truly believe in. And it would be hard for us to give up those beliefs, say Buffett style, that's kind of our camp, value investing stuff. I think if that's, you know, if you're that, if that's your true belief, you really have to ask yourself in this moment, are Am I wrong? Is it the thing? And this again comes back to the the quote from the Big Short movie, which I always get wrong. And the first three times I watched that movie, I didn't understand what the quote meant. Which the one at the opening scene it's where Mark Twain, cut. yeah, the Mark, Mark Twain, Twain one. It's the it's not what you know. It's not what you don't know. It's what you know for certain that uh, just ain't so. Which means it's what you know for certain or what you believe is certain that's actually wrong. And yeah. I think there could be some of that here. 
And well, yeah, yeah, it's just there's just no evidence that points to the contrary because it seems like anyone here in the industry and I wouldn't look, I'm not this is not an allegation against Coinbase or one of the quote unquote uh reputable crypto places like Robinhood that are uh, audited, I guess. I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing stuff nefarious as well. We saw a tweet this week that was shocking from someone that works on Coinbase's legal team that said, what's basically they said, what's nice about crypto is that you make up the law as you go along. And I read that and said, if you have money in Coinbase, I would be a little bit concerned, <laughs> just slightly as they seem to think that the law does not apply to them and that they're just making it up. And I, I, I want to be certain that the government, you know, for better or worse, is the ones that are applying the laws here. At least with Coinbase, they, it is public and it is audited. So it's like, I mean, that gives me a better sense of they, they still might be screwed, but at least they're honestly screwed. Not like lying and screwed um i don't know i mean i i read those financials and i still kind of laugh but the uh that's right they might still they might still be totally screwed especially they're doing their own stable coin which there are big questions about there's some investigative reporting out there on it not going to pretend like i know it for sure uh but yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Yeah, ask the question in the chat, and then we can move on to the next topic. Yeah, Mark says, happy holidays, chaps. What's your favorite portfolio tracking tools using Yahoo Finance as a beginner, but now looking for something more flexible? Well, that leads into our, uh, who's going to be our next sponsor in in early 2023, right? Yeah, we, uh, I guess Stratosphere is one. It's kind of new, Um, actually pretty new. And stratosphere.io, um, there's a lot of cool tools in there. Basically, you can track a whole bunch of different elements of the business, so the financials as well as other reporting metrics. So things like, um, you know, I, I guess company-specific stuff. So like Costco's warehouses or uh, um, Spotify subscribers, Netflix subscribers, stuff like that. Um, yeah, you can build a nice watch list. It's very fundamentals-based. If you're a fundamental style investor. This is not going to have any technicals. If your technicals, if that's your cup of tea, which I don't think our audience is, I would definitely try Coifin as well. Uh, but Stratosphere, if you're fundamentals oriented, I mean, it's been perfect. And that's, you can track your portfolio fairly easily in that regard. And Yahoo Finance is not 
I don't think it's been updated in 15 years and it's fine for the basics, but Stratosphere, they have a free tier. And again, we don't need to start doing an advertisement for them. We're going to be talking about them for the next few months at least. They have some great stuff if you are. I would try to, yeah. Especially if you're a beginner. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. Let's talk about the next item. Uh, So Disney's former CEO and now current CEO, Bob Iger. um, Well, he was a former CEO. He recently, I swear, yeah. he basically like announced himself as CEO again. Um, well, he was exec- the board. He he graduated himself up to executive chairman right before, or actually right before the COVID crash and the world shut down. So yeah, he's a nice guy. He he doesn't think about. It. Sorry, I'm spoiling your topic. You you go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was that was part of it. Um, but basically, he passed the torch on to Bob Chapek. And there was always kind of this concern that JPEG maybe didn't have the true, um, he didn't really run the company like ever, like even though his title said he should have. Um, and then this week, the Wall Street Journal, uh, I think it was the last week actually. So we've been, uh, we did the, our last power hour like a week and a half ago. But uh, last week, Wall Street Journal had an expose essentially saying that Bob Iger never really gave up a like management his his responsibilities so there's a couple of quotes i want to share there's one that says that mr i that that mr on that mr Iger was unhappy with mr chapuk was well established less well known is the depth of his antipathy and the lengths he went to deflate mr chapuk behind the scenes uh it says as executive chairman Iger wouldn't move out of the office that he had at disney's headquarters which I think that's maybe one sign that you you know if if you're no longer the CEO and think if you're a pass on the CEO's office. Think if uh, yes, exactly. Think if you're a VP, and I'm sure Disney has approximately a hundred thousand vice presidents. Think if you are in like a VP role of whatever, and you're like you see that. How confused would you be? Yeah, the other thing is like, let's say you're sort of you know. You're in the same office. I know it's weird that this is like a part of the the bureaucracy within company, companies or like the unnecessary steps. But if you're in the office and then you're promoted to see, let's say you're in like a bland office, just like every other VP, and then you're promoted to CEO and you stay in that same office, it I, and because the other guy wouldn't relinquish it, that guy's obviously still in control especially if he's coming in every day and running yeah. the company or he wants the illusion of control or he wants not the illusion. The, he wants everyone to see that he has the aura of, Oh, I'm the executive chairman, but I'm still really the visionary here. Yeah. It also goes on to say he called strategy meetings with Mr. Chapex underlings without inviting the new CEO. I mean, that's, that's just, this is an episode of succession right here. I this mean, is self-explanatory. This is, I mean, yeah, and then it says, Mr. Chapek told friends that Mr. Iger's attitude seemed to be, they work for me, not for you. So it, here's what I don't understand. Why was Iger, so he voluntarily stepped down, right? In February 20. He was, he was looking fe- for a successor. In February 2020, yeah. If you're going to voluntarily step down, why are you so reluctant to relinquish control? My- come back and feel like a hero? I think my conspiracy theory is he knew that COVID was going to screw them 
Right. Yeah. Plus what? he did that double, like I'm, I'm retiring right as COVID hit. And then he's like, well, I can't. All right. I'll right. come back. I have to be like, actually I'm out. Yeah, no. And then he came back as the executive chairman and then he's like, oh no, I can officially leave now. And the business, the, the, you get anyone into that business in 2020, it's going to be awful. You have cruises, you got theme parks, you got giant China exposure, you got uh, movies in theaters. They're the biggest movie theater business uh, or movies that go into theaters in the world. Who's going to succeed in that? Uh, <laughs> and they're in a giant transitional period that's really, they were too late to. It's, yeah. Maybe he just wanted to read. This is almost like resetting stock options where he had such a great reputation because the launch of, launch of Disney Plus was so successful in that first year. They executed pretty strongly, right? And then things were looking great for the company. Then COVID happens right before that he leaves. And he's like, oh yeah, COVID happened. And then all the problems they have right now with unprofitability, complaints at the theme parks, workers and stuff, China, uh, movie theaters aren't back. And he's like, all right, now I come in. The expectations are extremely low. And I can and fix, quote unquote, fix this company again, even though we do know that the majority of the blame should be faced on him. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call Disney Plus an, like an incredible success. The first year was pretty strong. All the, you know, right? In terms of in terms of sheer numbers, yes. Oh, but the, yeah, I forgot about the price. But, but he launched yeah. at, they launched at what? Was it like five bucks a month or seven? And they kept giving it away for free. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I felt like he was doing anything just to bump the user numbers up. And then he, the hard part is having to raise prices, which he waited for JPEG. Yeah. He's, he's like, I launched at five bucks. Uh, our unit economics are not going to work unless we go to 10. You're going to have to do yeah. that. And then see what churn happens with uh, people with uneconomical streaming services like Amazon yeah. and Apple TV and the, the continued rise of YouTube, uh, you're going to have to compete with that as well. And yeah, good luck, with, good luck with that. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just a, I thought I liked Iger three years ago. I've done a complete 180 here. It, I don't, I'm not fond of him at all. I guess he's the king of managing his reputation. Like that's that, that to me seems like his primary goal above all else. It worked for us back when we were less skeptical, I think, or maybe we didn't know about him as much. I, yeah, I and I think I've said this before on the show. I'm mad I said it the two or three times ago. I, I don't know if Disney is GE, but I would not be surprised if we look at him like we look at Jack Welch now. Where you know, you know, really built up the business to success, but it made it a bit fragile. That the consequences came home to roost, and I doubt Disney is going to be like GE because it's been a dominant business for so long. But I would not be surprised if twenty years from now we look at Iger in a similar light, because that's what it's. It, it seems like the stories are extremely. There's a lot of correlation to what he did, what Welch did. Yeah, but not, it's not. I, it's, I it's, it's not exactly the same. I well, know. they had what Welch had a pretty long tenure there, and then you start to revere him and, and think, "Oh, wow, he's done so much, so so well." Um, and especially if the stock does well during that time, 
you start to like the stock price makes you believe that he's the perfect CEO, perfect manager, but you don't see uh, a perfect manager has a great successor. And they're able to yeah. pass their the, the business is able to do really well beyond them. So I would say that he doesn't pass the test in that regard. And the other part, not yet, not yet. The story's not done, but so maybe, far, maybe he, maybe the next one is, is successful and we're totally uh, wrong 10 years from now. I'd say Schultz is probably the same way. Yeah. Well, Schultz, what has he done? He's done what Iger's done twice, right? Where he's come back, I think twice. I don't know if he's come back. Twi- I know he came back after Gary Johnson. Did he come back another I time? I think he, yeah, before that, I think he had already, yeah. I think they just probably love the feeling of like, don't worry, I'll rescue the company. And then it's like, we're going to start by cutting the dividend. Or it's like, yeah. we're going to start without, what did he do? We're, we're going to stop share repurchases and we're going to focus on employees. And then like a year later, they restart the repurchase program. Yeah. And there's a giant labor strike or brewing labor strikes at the company. So you're not, I think, and I was listening to someone that said this, almost all, I think, CEOs are bad or not up to par. Or sorry, no, not bad. Almost all, C- there's not, there's very, very few great executives that are worth what they're getting paid. Might just be Buffett, really. Might be the only one. <laughs> no, Mark Leonard. Fair. Yes. Yes. There's other ones. I there's mean, there's other. Other that's a, that's a joke, but Bezos, I guess not anymore, but yeah, he did a good job. And I would say, I mean, even though retail suffered, I would say Jassy is still generally done pretty well in terms of improving the business. Yeah. The narrative on that company is a lot different than what the financials actually look like. And people are just worried about the underlying earnings right now. Yeah. What's interesting about Bezos and Amazon is that compared to all the other big tech companies, and I think you can probably exclude Apple because they're older, but some of the newer big tech companies, their original business model was so hard. They went after an extremely hard game that had an extremely low likelihood of success and they pulled it off. And it's kind of the opposite where Google... Don't you think that makes makes it a bigger moat? Now, yes. The likelihood of success, like if you look at that, looked at say Google in 2002 when they're doing less than a billion in revenue, way, way less than a billion in revenue, and you're like, wow, they came up with this crazy business model. The likelihood of success seems higher. Maybe they wouldn't, you could not have predicted 90% dominance in search, but they had created such a good business model with so easy unit economics that the founders and the co CEOs or whatever they were, Paige and Bryn, didn't even care about advertising and they and the business model was so good that they actually neglected it and i'll come back to that when we talk about youtube tv but then amazon's the opposite so it was such a hard game where like google at one point i don't think it was a ham sandwich because they had to make some really strong acquisitions but uh amazon was a hundred percent not a ham sandwich and definitely still isn't and they had to plow every dollar Every dollar and then some back into the business. And come up with an extremely innovative uh, subscription model that has, I mean, one of the best just, right, business ideas of the last few decades is Amazon Prime. 
Yeah, probably. Just the, con- just the conception of that that saved their unit economics. Yeah, I do think it having a harder path to being a tech giant has given them a much deeper moat. Yeah, what's interesting though is uh, I was listening to the Founders podcast and they went over Jeff Bezos's old letters, or the person, it's just one person. And one of the things they talked about at Amazon was that they were, and this is one of the early ones, and they said, our culture is frugality. And I was thinking, huh, maybe they forgot about that one. Oh, well, hold on. It, it was never, we're not going to spend. It was, we're not going to spend on stupid shit. It was stuff, stupid stuff. The, but I think they may have forgotten that. So we have some evidence from- You our, think so? Yeah. I don't, I mean. Well, they're not afraid to spend on stupid business ventures if it turns out to be stupid. But I think they, and I guess we we are not inside there. They're definitely less, you know, $200 lunches per employee like a San Francisco company. But I think maybe some of that seeped in the last decade. Maybe. I'd say relatively speaking, like relatively, when, you compare, yes. when yeah. you compare it against the the people they have to compete with for talent, they spend less on stupid stuff. Less on lavish stuff, less yeah. luxuries. I mean, they'll, they'll waste a $10 billion a year on Alexa, but that's, I guess, different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know. That's pretty much it for my two topics. What do you have? Uh, before we do that, let's talk about seven investing again. The seven investing article of the week. Did you bring that one up? Um, remember, use code money. Get $100 off your annual subscription and check out that seven-day free trial using code money. Get that year in review. Perfect time to do it. Simon Roach, who is the founder of 7investing and the CEO, what the true meaning of investing is. And he kind of goes through how there's a lot of people that try to make just calls on financial media, which is basically just, oh, I, I'm calling it long or short here, or on Twitter to you know boost their ego, talk about their performance and talk about you know, calling a stock at a certain moment or bragging about something, which, um, we, well, we do that <laughs> to, some, to some regard. And he's right. It's not the actual reason to invest. And he says, and he thinks the better approach to investing, and this isn't going to be a novel idea by any means, but he says, quote, investing is meant to be a long-term journey that you personally embark on to improve your financial future. It isn't a one-size-fits-all approach where we all blindly follow those who bark the loudest. I thought it was pretty smart or pretty uh, elo- eloquent there. And I agree. Any thoughts on that as we head into the new year? I think this is his. Sorry, um, can you re- say it one more is- time? I was pulling it up right now. Investing is meant to be a long-term journey that you personally embark on to improve your financial future. It isn't a one-size-fits-all approach where we all blindly follow those who bark the loudest. I really like the bark the loudest part because you're going to hear the loudest people and you have to know that those are probably the people that have done... The reason they're loudest is probably because they've had the most success over the last, say, time period, couple years, year, something like that. And... In reality, you should probably be not listening to them because they're going to be overconfident just because the price is driving their own narrative. Yeah, I do. Like, I'm reading that quote now. I do like that. And I think I used to be in the camp that was like, it is one size fits all. The only thing that matters is total return. But like, I think since 
at least over the last couple of years, and probably because the bear market, I've grown to kind of accept or, or be more in the camp that you have to find a strategy that you can weather. It yeah. might not be like optimal in terms of total returns, but it will generate enough returns for you and allow you to do it for a long time. That that is so much like it's so much easier in, in like in practice or, or saying it in theory than than in practice to have sort of the optimal total return portfolio. It just never plays out that way. So I don't know. Yeah, I do like kind of that there is no one size fits all. Yep, agreed. And seven investing isn't uh, definitely not a service for everyone, but if it's your type, innovation type stuff, growthy, early stage. They got, their, they got their value picks. As well, but they definitely lean that. And they said, and he wrote, Simon wrote in this article that there's plenty of innovation on the horizon in 2023 and he can't wait to research it. If that's your sort of investing, I know there's tons of people out there that love that. Definitely try out the service, try out that free trial using code money. Um, but I totally agree. The longer, if you can go 50 years and it, you generate, well, I guess it depends how much your nest egg is at the start. But if you go, your returns are greater than 5% a year in real terms for 50 years, you're going to be fine. No one's going to complain. It's really about staying in the game for that long. And yeah, you'll be a lot happier, I think, with your freedom. Um, if you go above 10% a year, but in the long run, it's really about the most important thing is not zeroing, not, not zeroing your account. Because if you do 10% a year or 5%, um, and then the 10% a year person zeroes by making a stupid bet on a company that's going to go bankrupt and putting 30% of their portfolio in that, well, yeah. The, uh, we do have a timely comment in the chat and Maybe this can help play into your second topic, which we could probably just talk about right now. He says, Matthias says, I shouldn't sell my house to buy more Tesla. I believe that's sarcastic. Uh, there is, a, yes. Well, we don't even I don't know Matthias, so I'm, I'm hoping that's sarcastic, but no. Uh, you, shouldn't buy your, you shouldn't sell your house to buy anything. That's right. There's uh, a, yeah. I mean, he's regardless playing, of our opinions on Tesla. Yeah. And you can, you can own it. It's not, you know, a lot of people are. Uh, have made money in Tesla <laughs> and we've been skeptical the whole time. The And this is referring to a popular Twitter account that's talking about doing that. And it's just kind of sad to see because he, the I don't want to say what the Twitter account is, but it's just not... It, it, people are going to get hurt and it's just not nice to see. It uh, is, but yeah, it's definitely, kind of an interesting example of... I know the account we're talking about the difficulty in being too vocal about stocks you own. Yes. Because I remember when he talked, this account talked about how much he'd made. They, I, they, they, no, we can't, they, we can't they, they. Down. <laughs> uh, how much they made on Tesla and everyone kind of championed him for it. And he gained sort of this massive following and probably made a whole lot of friends online um, by building this persona around one individual company, which when things collapse, like you feel like your reputation's at risk and then you feel like you have to do things that are probably not in your best interest. So yeah, it's kind of interesting because we're, you know, be a generalist. Yeah. It was, yeah. We're trying to build a business around sort of this new age financial media stuff. And there are some cheat codes out there. We could become those type of people that 
basically, and I don't want to speak for these people, but I think underlying some of their, and not ambition, it's craziness or maybe what people would call absurd. It's for a reason because those are going to get lots of views and they're hopefully going to build up an audience. But if you lose your savings in that regard and and then you just go, well, I got 500,000 followers on Twitter or a big YouTube audience, well, what was it worth? Where there's just, there's a form that you could go through, but let's talk Tesla actually, because the stock is down, what, like 30% this week. There seems to be some margin calls on it. Elon was selling as well. And I think it's down like 70% this year now, something like that, maybe 60. I, I don't know, any thoughts on on that? Because I know we're really in we're, we're we're really anti the camp of determining why a stock dropped. But do you think this is a sign? Because this is what I think, that this is the beginning of the end of the bear market. Not the end, but the beginning of the end. Yeah, I could see that. The actually no, I'd I'd probably say we got a long way to go, but the what it, well, hey, the average bear market lasts 1.4 years. Yeah, but I'm just not, I just don't see how it doesn't go on for a little bit. But not all bear markets started with the biggest bubble of the last hundred years. Yeah. Since, I mean, the, since 1929. <laughs> there's still excess in places and I think it's, it's starting to get to the point where it's going to hurt. Like spent work. We're probably still going to see spending come down a little bit. Yeah. Also, which makes me think it's going to trickle through all the company's financials. Oh, it will. Yeah. Just pray. Maybe pray I, you know what? I, I I hate speculating on that stuff. That's so. so well, there, there there's uh there's a lot of variables for sure. But I think we're definitely seeing this week is capitulation for the first time. Yeah, and what the other part that I find kind of fun to watch is watching people try to figure out trying to find reasons that the price is dropping yeah and coming up with the, whatever excuse they can which you know what Elon might be right in why his excuse in why the stock is dropping it's probably a combination of things but when he's like <laughs> the discount rates higher uh, yeah that's that's the I think that's hogwash because he if the discount rate mattered, why? Why it would have happened a while ago. Rate yeah. long term rates are down since Tesla started fall- collapsing. Yeah, it might have just had a delayed effect for a lot Is of their that, sellers. And that's the only stock it happened to. I'm saying maybe that's the last stock that a lot of the people that have sold lately were holding on to. I think yes, that could be correct. They were, you know, they're hoping that could be the one salvage, their salvage asset for the people that focus on quarterly stuff or annual stuff, and they're really trying to hit their marks. Yeah, I could see that. But you know what? There's probably something to the validity of him going kind of like ultra conservative and kind of tarnishing his brand as well as Tesla's. Yeah, and here, here's what I think their backlog has collapsed from all the third party estimates. I think people are looking at the fundamental story and saying, Oh, growth might be because against it might all, not grow. It might literally not, it might decline. Exactly. Exactly. I saw someone discussing how 
a year ago, people looked at NVIDIA, what, $600 billion market cap growing 40% a year. You could see just compounding, 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 trading at 40 times earnings. They're like, oh, 40 times earnings is not that bad. It's growing 40% a year. And then it turns flat and then it turns negative. And you, know, you don't, and then you so the hard earnings to imagine that, it. I, I've, I've done that. I'm sure we've all done it, but it's so hard to imagine something going from, it's a lot easier to say like, all right, it's growing 30% right now. Well, you know, if it has a down year, maybe it'll only grow by 10% next year. But especially in these cyclical businesses, like it could not grow. It, it could decline. And if it's trading at 40 times earnings, the, earn, the margins are going to go down and the multiple is going to go down. So that's just a recipe for, yeah. oof. I mean, our biggest losers the last two years have been the ones where, well, they started out basically at break even, but there's been a little bit of margin, either margin deterioration or not really, it was kind of the reverse, no margin expansion, which I think a lot of investors were expecting and the growth decel where that's what really hurt the two things. All right. And I think, I think Tesla investors, I think NVIDIA investors could really learn from that. We're trying to, at least. You know what um, else I think has caused probably a lot of the selling? The, the selling. Well, yes. You're seeing I, people sell because... Well, the incremental I, buy, uh, you know. I'm I seeing think, a lot of people go, what's happening? Why is it happening? I keep seeing the price go down. They're trying to rationalize why it's happening. Well, Elon keeps tweeting and, and it's ruining the brand and people are scared that people aren't going to buy Teslas anymore. But it's, it's the price actually declining that's scaring people the most because they don't know what's happening. That's they true. don't know when it'll stop. Well, yeah. Which if and you buy something that repurchases a huge amount of their stock, then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Well, they do not have the capacity to do that versus the size of their market cap. But the yeah at the end of the day for every stock the reason a stock is trading at the price it's at is because the last buyer bought it there and the last seller sold it there so yeah that's it all right next topic this is a i think one that'll spur some fun discussion and then we have some other ones i know you got some extras as well in case we have more time nfl officially or excuse me nfl sunday ticket is officially moving to YouTube. This is a pretty simple story, pretty simple deal. So YouTube has signed a deal with NFL Sunday Ticket, and that is the National Football League's premium pass that gets you access to all game streams for an annual fee. I think maybe all game streams, except for your in-market one. Um, costs around $300 per season. And it is... Yeah, it's just one. I think there's a few million subscribers a year. It's just kind of for the the ultra fan that wants to watch all the all the games. Now, it's been at DirecTV for a long time. It's kind of held up DirecTV for their subscribers, but the distribution is going to be interesting. So, you know, it's it's three hundred dollars a year, right? Um, you'll be able to upgrade it through YouTube TV, and also you'll be able to upgrading it using if you don't have YouTube TV through YouTube's primetime channels, which is the new place on the YouTube app where you can subscribe to streaming services and watch them through the YouTube app, which I think is a pretty smart move. Um, the deal numbers are a seven-year deal. So I think, what is that, through the end of this decade? At $2 billion per season. First thoughts, and then maybe I'll come back to my thoughts. I like... 
the YouTube TV distribution channel. I don't know how successful the primetime channels would be, but at least there's no reason for them not to add it there. If they're, if they're already buying the rights, they, you know, put it in as many channels as they possibly can that they own. So it makes sense. But the, I, I would, I feel like a lot more people would, would pay up for a little higher priced YouTube TV subscription with it included than people paying directly for it through YouTube. Yeah. Maybe they will bundle it somehow. What's interesting, I think, as well, is that the complaints about buying Sunday ticket, canceling Sunday ticket, it's sort of um, like a, a one of those newspaper subscriptions where people have to call up DirecTV and they just had a terrible customer experience. I wonder if YouTube, and this is, I think, why the NFL said they want to go with a streaming partner now, because the other competitor was Apple, where they bowed out for various reasons. They want it to be super easy for people to sign up, and I think, well... If anything, YouTube is the best at making things extremely easy and customer-centric where no one's complaining about uh, UI, whatever, customer experience. Um, I honestly think I'm... I think maybe I've underestimated YouTube's ambitions. Their CTV ambitions are large. Here's what I think could seal the deal as just a dominance in the United States and maybe internationally because there's local, local sports rights. And I think it is... And again, these deals come up every... I don't know, seven, 10 years. So it's not going to be overnight. You can't just steal the rights. But a lot of the local sports rights are through these janky old school channels that are really hard to get. And I think they could, for not that much money relative to the size of Alphabet, get these deals and you can make an even better bundle with YouTube TV or make it free on YouTube where the, the advertising, just the eyeballs, the number of hours watched. I mean, you could get their CTV listening or viewing hours. I mean, they're already gaining market share uh, of CTV viewing hours. I think it'd just be extremely smart to try to be one of the places to watch sports because that's the last. You could really kill um, traditional cable at a faster rate. And the faster cable dies the faster more people are going to be watching YouTube on their TVs. I think that's going to benefit them in the long run, even if the economics are break-even, like a lot of sports deals are. I think you're right, but I also think you're you're partly just saying this because you're frustrated that you don't get the Mariners games on your on your stream. Oh, of course. Solution. I think, uh, yeah. But, <laughs> I think you, you go but, back to this but, all the time. You're like, why don't they do this? Yeah. Well, I think, and not everyone's. It's a fair. I mean, tens, I, I think tens of millions of people across the United States would be happy about this. I if think they, a lot of that people, was right. Re- re- go ahead. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be would be happy. I, I think a lot of people are probably looking and saying local sports viewership hasn't grown that much. Be, but but I I think a large part of that is because it's not as accessible. Yeah, you're not going to pay ninety bucks just to watch that. If people talk about how well it's kind of a declining market, like the the local sports viewership among younger demographics. Oh, it would it would soar if it got on YouTube. It would soar. What, what's the yeah. numbers of what's the numbers of young people on YouTube? Isn't it ninety five percent use it every day? Ninety five percent. I'll say that again. Ninety five percent use YouTube every day. I don't know not know why the owners of and we're not talking NFL or 
because NFL is kind of larger than all the other sports leagues. If you're if you're an NBA owner, if you're a hockey owner, um, if you're a soccer owner, even or you're a baseball owner in the United States, I think abroad, probably soccer for the local sports rights. Why are you not clamoring to get on with one of these streamers, especially YouTube, where there's everyone knows how to use it. The streaming quality is fantastic. And again, 95% of people, young people who you're trying to not lose, use it every single day of their lives, probably for an hour a day. Yeah, I would think that that would be one of the premier destinations. The other thing is they probably have a lot of bargaining power. YouTube, YouTube does. Yes. Because of their viewership already. If you're the NFL and you're thinking about what streaming solutions you want to give your rights to, they've taken a risk with Amazon Prime. And from the stats I've seen, the prime viewership of Thursday Night Football was, at least in the first year, was significantly worse than when it was on linear. Maybe that's I changed that's, a little bit. Yeah, that's. I think... But it's, it's also... It's a, it's a smaller pool. It is a smaller pool. And I think what's tough, though, is... You're gonna, I think we're going to have to wait for maybe five years to see if it was a failure because there's a lot of people, the older audience that we're going to be, that aren't going to be able to, aren't going to be able to watch it. Um, so I think we'll have to wait and see, but yeah, that is a bit of a concern. YouTube would be a lot easier for people to fire it up, but if you give it to someone who, you know, already has the scale and already has the eyeballs, I mean, Apple TV is kind of fighting an uphill battle with this. So is the Amazon prime video. Um, if you give it to like YouTube already has scale, you have have less of a risk of losing some fans. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Also, what I think needs to be compared though for the numbers is that there are still a good chunk of households that do not have internet connected TVs and they're just going to struggle to watch Thursday Night Football um, on Amazon Prime. And that'll slowly fix itself over say the next five years. It'll kind of become a negligible number. But what you know well how's that going to affect is, it this is kind of that awkward period in like connected yeah. tv streaming where it's like at least for sports for sports yeah well a lot of the like property right owners so whether it's like sports leagues or like content owners they have to take if they want to do an exclusive deal they have to take a risk especially since it's basically like 50 50 ctv versus linear viewing right now in the US, they kind of have to take the risk to go towards connected TV, knowing that a lot half their audience isn't going to be able to watch it. Yeah. Over time, that's fine, but they have to take the risk now. Yeah. I think why not take the leap? Because it's cash cow, the linear stream is cash cow. Yeah. The advertising. Have you seen like you've watched local sports at some point? the advertising technology they got running on these local sports channels is, I mean, what do they got? They got a hamster back there. I see the same ads, same five ads the entire season. Hey, streaming's bad too. Sometimes, but YouTube they just don't even have ads. Yeah. But think of, yeah, but think of, think about how beautiful it would be from an advertiser's perspective or even just an ad inventory. If YouTube offered local sports and they had those streaming ad insertions, I mean that yeah, that would be great. The other and so, this reminds so much me, so much inventory. This conversation reminds me of uh, I had to rent a I had to rent a car and on my 
trip last week. And for some reason, this car didn't have an aux cord. And so, or, or any sort of an input. And so I had to listen to radio. That is a market that not not should be, must be disrupted. The, the experience. They the most janky, like yeah. scammy ads I've ever, like just the worst ads. And the quality's awful from a sound quality. And there's so many ads. The, the user experience is. is it's like just, all law firms. It's horrendous. Yeah, it's horrendous. Anyway, the uh, you got one more thing here. We got a, a couple minutes, so we want to talk about that. Yeah, let me. I gotta click the tweet here. What was it? Ah, uh, this is some DoorDash fraud. It's too long of a Twitter thread. Let's click the other one. Spoiler alert: DoorDash is a scummy company. Who knew? Okay, here's one that I think is interesting. And that is the personal savings rate in the United States during the pandemic for two reasons. One, the stimulus, and two, the fact that people weren't spending on going out to eat and travel. The savings rate shot up to 30%. And typically, and this is for individuals, typically the savings rate hovers between 5 and 10%. United States, we don't like to save money. Over the last year, or two years, actually, would it be three years now? Well, in between two and three years. After the savings rate shot up to 30%, it slowly trickled down and has actually gone way below 5%. We're at like 2% now. And I guess some of that makes sense because there's more, you know, as they're saving more earlier, the balance sheet of individuals was higher. So they're going to be able to deplete it more with having the same, you know, savings as they had pre pandemic on their personal balance sheets. Here's the question I had and I guess didn't get very many much interaction, but I think it might. I wanted to ask this question to you. What stocks are potentially over-earning due to this dynamic? And do you think maybe it's just a basket of consumer discretionary items? My guess would be the consumer discretionary. Um, But right now, I don't think they're over-earning right now. Because when you look at the grocery commentary or the commentary among like department stores, target the retailers, stuff like that. It's the consumer discretionary items that are now hurting. I think they were over earning. Right. So I think Ford, or I, I want to know what Ford earnings are say the next 12 months from now, this holiday season plus the next three months versus last holiday season and the three months preceding this. I want to know if those are going to be material different, materially different. My, my thesis is it, and this is not like a real thesis that I'm going to make any investment decision on, is that they will be a lot different. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. China, I'm pretty sure, is like the inverse right now. Saving rate, savings rates have kind of climbed up household bank bank savings. So they generally save more. The actually the the country, for better or worse, has struggled to could turn themselves into a consumer economy because people. Uh, and one of the factors is that people in general in China save more um, which i think is probably smart yeah um what's this doordash thing you got okay so apparently there's a lot of fraud okay so some guy ordered a burger on doordash and there was a basically the dasher did a fraud where they did a proof of delivery sent a photo of the house which is just a screenshot of the house from zillow and got their payment and then it was clearly fraud, but DoorDash won't refund them. 
So these dashers are doing fraud on the um, by faking orders, right? Getting order volume, keeping everything. And yeah, it's not. Um, it, it wasn't a good look for DoorDash because he went to his bank, he went to DoorDash, and DoorDash is like, no, yeah, it's all legit. Um, but what was interesting is that the tweet got so popular that there was a uh, developer or maybe product manager at DoorDash who said, hi, at this person, I work for DoorDash. I want you to know I flagged this internally and it's being reviewed, both this order in particular and the errors you highlighted more broadly. And it's quite interesting that when someone does a, a viral online post, it can actually have some effect in the real world. But again, I said this earlier, they are who we thought they were, DoorDash. I they, mean, can, this... they, they, they talk about supporting local businesses. They, they, they have all this narrative and I really think it's propaganda. And all the evidence over the last five years is that they are an extremely selfish and extremely scummy company that I don't think anyone should be associated with. That's how they act. So, I mean, I'd say this is more on the, well, it's general. for starters, it's more on the Dasher, but their customer support here uh, was a failure. So unsurprising. I initially, when I was reading this, I thought it was worse. I thought it was like, DoorDash was pretending to have dashers and then it would just screenshot something, <laughs> screenshot their Zillow house and just like. That would be bad. Yeah, that'd be pretty crazy. Uh, all right. Um, I think it's five. I think it's, yeah. Five PM Pacific. An hour. You want to sign right. off or you want me to? I'll sign off. Let's hit the disclosure. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. If you'd like, if you'd want to watch these, we go live on YouTube every 4 p.m. Pacific time on Thursdays. That's 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. You can also watch the replays on YouTube as well, uh, although it's just two guys on a Zoom call. Give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our free podcast newsletter that is in the show notes. Thank you all for tuning in and watching. We will see you next time. And and uh, and thanks to Matthias Houghton or Houghton for uh, the questions in the chat. Who's keeping this conversation alive? So, uh, props to everyone for the chat. <laughs>